Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast, episode 165. I'm your first host, Marcello. And I'm host number two, D. Host number three, Corey. Wee, wee, wee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we, should we kind of tell them that this isn't a normal episode? It's just a... Yeah. Yeah, we're not doing anything normal this episode. Uh, so... We're in DevCon. We're at DevCon. We're in Mexico. We're going to enjoy this. Going to get some octopus. We're going to go watch a fight. But, like, we just wanted to do the ads and then introduce who the guest is and then let you guys roll with that for this week. Um, when we get back to a little bit of normalcy, we'll record a nice long one for you guys where we can talk about comic books and shitty movies like you love. Uh, but for right now, we're going to hit you with some ads and then go straight into the interview. All right. Yeah. So 165 is brought to you by Pally, uh, our sole advertising sponsor. Mm, Pally. They're a decentralized social travel ecosystem comprised of two parts, Pally Social and Pally Adventures. Social is the mobile app. It's been live for a while, since around April. And Adventures is a community marketplace where visitors can immerse themselves in new cities like when Corey goes to London and hopefully he has a unique experience that will be curated by local hosts and they ran a press release and that press release basically outlined that they have a no tolerance policy for discriminatory malicious violent behavior so if you use the app just it's peace of mind you're going to be safe the pre-sale pre-sale sold out in 11 minutes and the team is busy, uh, you know, working on that crowd sale, which launched about two weeks ago. So go to pally.co, learn all about that, and we hope to see you there. And the host for this, or the, the guest for this episode <laughs> is Stephen McKeon. Yes. That is, it. that is how you pronounce that. McKeon. And excuse me a minute while I Google him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. We interviewed him a while ago. Um, so, But one thing I will say that you guys probably are going to be happy about that I've noticed since being at DevCon is that um, people have like a general low-level disdain for anyone saying they're going to release an ICO. In fact, I've talked to several people who will have fascinating projects that are saying, yeah, we are doing a token release, but we're not going to announce it here because that's just not what you want to do. Uh, I've, not I've met quite a few people that. that that will they'll even straight up say like if you say the the term ICO to an investor, they stop listening. You yeah. can be doing a token sale, you can be doing a crowd sale, you can be saying things. Do not say ICO. 
if you are trying to sell yourself. Yeah. You will get turned off immediately. Yeah. Um, apparently, it's not kosher anymore. So it's weird how quick this space works and how cyclical things are. And I think we're entering the trough of the ICO cycle where like anyone trying to launch an ICO right now, the skepticism and the criticism and the uh, diligence taken into looking at your project is going to be so high that you better have some dank shit or else it is getting no love from investors from people like me who are like ah instead of buying a ps4 i think i'll buy some tokens today like you're getting no love from me either so with that in mind uh we're going to introduce the bitcoin podcast coin we're doing an ico that's right where um you buy our tokens and we give you absolutely nothing absolutely and you're gonna get about three thousand x return that's right. Hashtag not investing advice. You're going to make so much money. We'll give you something. If you give me your address, I'll drop ship to you a package of Orville Redenbacher's movie theater butter flavor. And that's what you get. It'll be like Boy Scouts, but not. like. And with all the millions of dollars that you give to us, he's going to drop ship those with the Bitcoin podcast branded drones. That's right. That we that we specifically designed to just drop off Orville Redenbacher movie theater popcorn flavor that's all that you get they don't do anything else but that that's what we're investing the money into that and condos in different places around the world from becoming rich and i want to assure you this is a utility token your tokens are are going to the utility of making us more money we're we're drop shipping orville redenbacher to you drop ship I just like saying dropship because yeah. of Halo. That's the only thing. All right, you guys want to get into it? Yeah. All right. So without further... Oh, you need to... Yeah. I was just about to say, if you go to the University of Oregon and your professor teaches corporate finance, there's a good chance that this professor is on our show. So <laughs> if you don't go to the University of Oregon, then he still deserves your attention because he studies crypto assets. So he kind of fuses that into his curriculum. He teaches uh, venture capital and fintech to the undergraduate MBA program and well, and the PhD programs. So screw uh, the masters guys. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you're interested in like corporate risk taking and security issuance and private equity, then you're going to love this. How do you get a, how do you become a professor in corporate risk taking? That's got to be a standardized thing. It's super standardized. Like that's that's almost the definition of building a giant corporation is assessing risk. Yeah, I guess so. I gotta be yeah. honest with you. It sounds boring, but it's not. Don't like listen. Don't Just listen. Listen to this show. It sounds boring, but it's interesting. <laughs> Like, I mean... Yeah, I remember it being pretty interesting. I remember even when we recorded it. Yeah, you don't have to be interested in finance to kind of get... I mean, it's, it's kind of a character study in how a professor navigates through his curriculum. And he's teaching the course, but he's also on-ramping people at the same time. So, I think it's important. Mm-hmm. So, so without further ado, ado, here it is. Hey, so, uh, I think... Mass adoption of cryptocurrencies are, are kind of like the podcast's adage at this point. You know, we're we're big proponents of community, and we we feel 
that university professors and other researchers play a huge influencer role. Uh, so Stephen, uh, do I call you Dr. Stephen? Oh, you can just call me Steve. I'm not that formal. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you're an expert in topics related to corporate finance, including uh, crypto assets. So uh, we wanted to get him on the show. He's a he's at the University of Oregon, where he's the assistant professor of finance, and he works in the Securities Analysis Center at the Lundquist College of Business. And you got it. Yeah, the fact that it took me six weeks to get you on my calendar means that you're a very busy man whose time <laughs> is no doubt valuable. So thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. And uh, this might be kind of a straightforward kind of question, but uh, let's let's kind of get your take on when you first became interested in Bitcoin, even though it kind of seems like a no-brainer as you kind of have a, a natural passion towards finance. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've always... I've always been interested, uh, you know, both in tech and finance. I started my career in Silicon Valley um, back right in the height of the first tech boom, kind of 99, 2000. Um, then moved away from tech for a while. I ended up running a winery up in Napa for a while and then went back to school and then started here at Oregon in 2011. And I hunted, you know, I guess I first became interested probably in 2011 started hunting around. It was kind of a false start in some ways. Like, I think I tried to buy some. I wasn't really sure how to buy it. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty, like in the early days. And I think I tried to buy some off eBay, but then the guy only wanted a form of payment that was sort of untraceable. And I got a little freaked out and then kind of stepped away. And I actually went into drone software. So kind of stepped away from crypto entirely. And uh, one of the one of my co-founders, a guy named Jonathan Evans, um, who's the CEO of Skyward, he went to sort of like a startup poker night in Portland. And the only way to buy in was with, in, with Bitcoin. I think this was 2012, maybe. And so he came back and he was kind of saying to us like, oh, like, you know, have you heard of Bitcoin? And uh, the only way to buy into this poker game was with Bitcoin and you know, this other guy sold me some Bitcoin. And so I did sort of like reignited uh, my interest in it. And um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I was so involved with this drone software company really up until about 2015. I was on the board there, left the board. And then I thought this is the moment where I'm just going to start diving in. Um, and, you know, everyone uses this term kind of going down the rabbit hole uh, and, yeah, it's it really just fit like a glove, I guess, just as you mentioned, sort of having the finance side and the tech side, it's uh, sort of the perfect mix of those two things. Yeah, it's it's it, coming from the early days and then seeing where like, the, the current landscape of cryptocurrency in general are two very different things. And like, could you could you imagine the early, early days that things would have been like, proliferated as much as they are and now the real question is whether or not things are securities and and which ones are not which ones are and what the difference between those two things are um i guess it, i mean like a lot of things you saw the potential uh for it to be big but really there was just a question of adoption and you know because you've seen these you know recently there's been a big run-up in 2017 but it's not the first run-up. Like I remember in, um, I don't know, maybe it was 2012 when it went from like a single digit up to like 
30, 40, $50. And that was in percentage terms, that was an enormous run up. And then it came back down. Um, and then in 2013, there was a huge run up and came back down. So um, I think each one of these, you're starting to see more and more adoption. And at this point, um, I mean, it certainly seems unstoppable from, you know, where we sit in terms of at this point, practically everybody you ask has heard of Bitcoin. So I often will do I'll do presentations in front of various audiences and I'll always ask them, you know, how many people have heard of Bitcoin? Like practically every hand goes up and then you say, how many people own Bitcoin? Very few hands go up. Um, so it's still not a widely held asset. Um, but in terms of entering the public consciousness, uh, it's expanded greatly over the past, particularly over the past 12 months. I'd translate that as huge potential for growth. I mean, that's if right. everyone in the room knows about it and only if you own it, then that's all it takes is staying power and really existing and being secure for those few hands to turn into many more hands. So. There's there's also like a really strong age effect, which I I mean everyone sort of knows anecdotally, right? Um, the you know younger people are are adopting this much more quickly than older generations, and so I mean as those people, as that generation I should say sort of grows up and acquires more wealth, um, that's potentially you're going to see more interest in this asset class. I I think I, at the risk of creating a false dichotomy there's two ways in which like the real adoption could go one is if you view this through the lens of it being something like a digital gold it's just people figuring out how to buy this asset and using the asset directly if we just talk about bitcoin the other one is we build things on top of it use it more like a technology that enables you know communication of value and then we just need to build the applications that allow end users to do this without knowing, use this technology without really knowing they're using it, or a combination of both. Do you see a direction either way, or do you have a preferred view or lens on what this new technology is supposed to be used for? Um, I think the digital gold kind of store of value uh, is certainly a compelling use case, particularly pro probably less so for people in the U.S. than in other countries where they have much more volatile currencies or where they have uh, issues with um, government control that are worried about seizure of assets and this type of thing. Um, that's, that's a pretty big chunk of the world, actually, in terms of population anyway. So uh, you, can, you can kind of go down that road and see where Bitcoin is, you know, is potentially a, a, an interesting asset for those applications as store value. I am a really big believer in sort of like these second level services that are going to come up, though. And whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Tezos or something we haven't even heard of, I think these platform protocols um, – are going to be ones to watch because there's going to be a lot of stuff built on top of them. So to kind of switch the script here, if, if we had to deal with like um, Bitcoin's potential survivability moving forward, do you feel like maybe the last major huddle hurdle is the regulatory hurdle? Is there still a chance for a, a government to come and just like say no more? This is a, this was a fun game, but we're done with it. So I, 
yeah, so I'm definitely a huge believer that the regulatory um, challenges are out there and that we haven't sort of seen the end of it for sure. Um, I don't think any single government could kill this thing at this point, right? So, I mean, even you can see what China's doing right now. Um, there's, it's very, it's stateless, right? So it's really not possible for a single nation state um, to kill it. They certainly could restrict the ability of their citizens to engage in um, transactions, right? So there's, you know, if you if you shut down all the exchanges in your country and you don't allow your banks to move any fiat in the, in and out of any of the gateways, it's definitely going to make it harder um, for those citizens to to engage in the token economy. Um, but could they kill it? I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. I guess you go, you go. I guess you could go through some mental exercise where you're like, "What if every nation in the world sort of like coordinated?" Um, but I don't think you'll see that. I mean, in the U.S., they're not nearly as hostile to it um, as what you've been reading out of some of the Asian nations. I, I think actually, what the the only the things the U.S. is worried about are things like investor protection, right? So, like, if, if there are truly fraudulent ICOs, you're going to see crackdowns on that. Um, I think as some of these things start to fail, but I don't think you're going to see the U.S. move to try and like ban Bitcoin. They're just going to try and add some sort of anti-money laundering, know your customer uh, regulations on top of fi certain financial institutions that are going to deal with this, You know, particularly at the exchange level is my view. You, well, just, the, ahead, the, you, you like to bring up that saying all the time where um, if people had asked Henry Ford, what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And right after they invented cars, like uh, Stephen said, then the pioneers in the automobile industry, they were able to drive around free from traffic lights. And that's kind of where Bitcoin is right now. It's it's obviously not complete. However, in order to scale, you know, regulating traffic flow became a necessity. So I guess my question about regulations is on the clarity side. And this comes after the, the Reserve Bank's warning over financial, operational, and security-related security risks that may occur when using digital money. And in fact, many Bitcoin businesses in other countries, like you just mentioned, like Asia, they've, they've closed their doors in fear of being arrested and raided by tax officials. So how do we help clarify these regulations? Uh, it's going to be an evolving process. Um, I mean, I can't really speak to other countries because I don't really know their systems as well. But certainly in the U.S., um, the SEC is going to have to weigh in on whether these things are securities. And I think you're going to see more. So, you know, this very gray area when you think about a utility token. But um, you're going to see more and more traditional assets tokenizing as well. So there was just an announcement by Overstock today about um, something called Teaser. I don't know if you caught that, but basically mm -hmm. it's the idea that they're building out sort of a uh, a regulated exchange um, where that'll be sort of like blessed by the SEC to trade tokens that are just upfront that they are security. So maybe these are like tokenizing equity or something like this. Um, you'll see more move and, and again, their, you know, their ATS, their alternative trading system, I, the way the article read that I saw, it was already blessed by the SEC. Like they've got the license to do it. Um, so I think some of this is going to be working with the regulators within existing regulation. And then some of it is going to be 
trying to get clarity on these gray areas. So like particularly for the utility tokens, the protocol tokens, um, getting the SEC to kind of, I don't know whether they will, I don't know if they'll put out like a specific recipe, like if you do this, this, and this, it's a security. I guess that's the Howey test. But um, you'll, it, it'll, it'll evolve through precedent, right? So there will be times when they'll take action against certain um, actors, like market participants, particularly bad actors, and then we'll, we'll learn a little bit more. But um, yeah, so I don't, I don't have any specific timeline in terms of how that's going to play out. But my guess is in the next 24 months, we'll see a lot more than we've seen so far because I, I mean, I do know that they are thinking carefully about this. They're thinking carefully about this at the Fed. They're thinking carefully about this at the SEC. Um, and so it's not like they're actually ignoring what's going on. You can tell just by their recent task force in the SEC to kind of look at fraudulent activities and, and um, investment protection. I, I, I find it, I don't know if it's ironic is the correct word, but the, the way that this technology was born out of the anti-government no one can stop me using this money or no in, no intermediary kind of ideology and here we are discussing almost like mainstream adoption because we're having u.s regulatory agencies and other governmental like other countries governmental agencies looking at it in terms of legitimacy so it, it's it, it, there's some some strange idea there but it's it's, I find it either amusing or I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Is it you ever thought about that aspect of it? I have. I mean, I think there's going to be, there's always going to be demand for um, privacy coins, right? So whether, whether you think of that as Bitcoin or maybe something even more like um, Zcash or Monero or something like this, um, where it truly is cloaked, like, you know, you can't figure out who owns what and so on. Um, but if you think about mainstream adoption, just sort of like regular Americans, um, they want something that's easy usually, right? So, mm -hmm. and, and they maybe don't have those specific concerns. So if you think about widespread adoption or take it even to another level, think about institutional investors, right? So that if you look at like where most of the money sits, right, in terms of like investable assets, a lot of it sits with pension funds, insurance companies, mutual funds, like these large asset managers. They cannot mess around with an unregulated security, right? So, they, I mean, they have fiduciary duty. They can get sued. And so they aren't going to demand um, – they aren't going to demand those features of, of privacy and whatnot, right? The, the feature they're going to demand is regulatory compliance, and so I think that's where, when you think about widespread adoption, there's going to be a segment for whom regulatory compliance is more important than the privacy aspects. Then do you see, do you see kind of the the push for? I feel like the main reason we we lack adoption is a lack of standards and this this almost like horizontal proliferation of different platforms trying to do things. Do you see? regulation becoming the, the entity that almost enforce these standards? Or do you think we'll have a, a push for self-regulation in the, I, in the development of standards by the people who are developing things? Yeah, I think it's going to have to come on 
the it's going to have to come from industry. So you don't usually, um, I mean, we went through the same sort of thing in drones. You go through it in a lot of different technological developments where, you, you know, uh, having everybody agree to certain sets of standards um, really encourages development. Mm-hmm. And those usually don't come from government, right? So they come usually from the industry itself and then maybe later adopted by government. Um, so, for example, like within drones right now, there um, this guy I mentioned earlier, Jonathan Evans, he's working with something – called GUDMO, where they're trying to set sort of protocols for the entire world, right? So if you think about airspace across different nationalities, sort of everybody is playing on the same, with the same playbook. You're seeing some of that within crypto standards like ERC-20, right? So ERC-20 was sort of a, it was a standard, I guess, that all of a sudden, all if you look at the 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 sort of breakout of all these ICOs, it coincided I mean, there certainly were some prior to ERC-20, but it seems like ERC-20, when sort of everybody had a standard on which to build, absolutely, um, really made this thing take off, or at least was correlated it, in time with uh, with the ICO boom taking off. Yeah, that's, that's the, the, the ERC-20 standard allowed for people to build on top and to provide services to all the different types of tokens being done. So exchanges... Could allow them to, you know, easily incorporate them onto them onto their platform, and you provided liquidity for people to go in and out, so on and so forth. It's just it's it's things like that that will help the entire industry grow. But I feel like I don't. It's 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 so fast that it's hard for people to keep up with it. Like it, it now, it's no longer in the beginning of the early ICOs. So we just stick with that type of thing. Everyone knew what was happening, who to talk to, and how to properly vet these types of things now there's so many of them and the in the exuberance of the community is throwing money at everything it's it seems it's though we've made it a, a really 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 easy place for people to take advantage of others I don't know uh, the question yeah. is there. <laughs> right i mean i do think if you're referring to basically fraud in terms of like people getting taken advantage of uh there's no question some of that's going on um i think that's not the main story, um, but that is what the SEC is going to be cracking down on. Um, yeah. with examples where it's just egregious. And yeah, but I, this question of standards, you know, the interesting thing is once so, something I've been thinking a lot about uh, is sort of this concept of switching costs, right? So we're so early right now that switching costs are relatively low. Like if you were on or take like storage, right? Where I think maybe they're on counterparty. And then they switched. And then they saw sort of everything was taking off around ERC twenty, and I think they switched to ERC twenty. What's going to happen is the longer we get down this path of development, the higher the switching costs could be from moving, um, like from one protocol standard to another. And so people will start. Um, I think they'll start consolidating around around standards. Maybe maybe it ends up being ERC twenty, or or maybe it ends up being something we haven't seen yet but i do know like the farther down you get um fragmentation gets harder and harder to correct so i'm a big fan of of some standardization in certain places early on in a technology development cycle yeah there's twofold 
I, I keep making these dichotomies, but there's there's two ways that can go as well. Like I think Andreas talks about this as the ossification of a protocol layer, and that like as you build on top of it, it becomes more and more difficult to change the underlying um, protocol, which which makes it more legitimate and easier to rely on. But also, if it's not the best way to do things, if there's a it, you're still stuck with the limitations of that protocol. Like for instance, if you look at I think TCP/IP or IP version four it kind of got ossified because of the network effect and how everything was built on top of it. We've had IP version six for so long, but no one uses it because like no one builds on it because no one uses it. And do you, do you right. see something like that happening with maybe the standardizations of what we're doing here in crypto? Cause there's a very, very similar analogy there. Uh, it certainly seems like it. Um, I mean, the thing that's a little bit different with these protocols is you can fork them, right? Mm. So, uh, that I mean, it still comes back to this idea of switching costs. Like even if you fork it, and and the fork is better if you've got so much stuff built on the on the the other version. Um, how likely is it for people to switch uh, in terms of these platform layers? I don't have a good answer for that, but I think it's going to be interesting to watch over the coming years. Stephen, are we, I guess, allowed to talk a little bit about I guess your course and your course structure? Sure. Well, I was curious because I guess the standard way people have gotten into finance has been because they're they're naturally attracted to numbers and math. But I mean, finance is it's usable from different perspectives. So I was curious, how does I guess the course structure for your for your students differentiate from other finance courses and and I guess make it more accessible and and user friendly for new audiences? Because you know at that age group, sure everyone's heard of it, but you know this is kind of a new landscape for a currency. Right. So, um, I mean, I'll start off by saying generally that the interesting part of finance um, are ideas uh, rather than numbers, right? Ideas and concepts. The numbers and the formulas, these are all basically tools uh, that we use to reach some sort of decision. But actually, the decision part is the interesting part. Um, The tools are just the things that help us get there. So... um, We definitely have to, so again, it depends on sort of what course you're referring to, but the the elective where I cover um, these topics, like the uh, fintech and crypto in more detail, they are definitely, you're going to see a lot more ideas presented in those types of course, uh, rather than sort of formulaic, um, you know, number crunching. We'll, We'll dive into... We'll dive into some numerical exercises because it's actually interesting to think about, like, how would you value something like Bitcoin, right? And you've got all these different frameworks to think about. And so you can learn something about finance generally by thinking about how to apply it um, to this this landscape that we don't, you know, hasn't fully been figured out yet. And so we'll do some of those types of exercises. Um but a lot of it is also just thinking about where it could go, what sort of finance, you know, financial intermediation is a huge, if you think about financial services, right, a lot of it is about intermediation. So a lot of it is thinking about how this technology is going to disrupt certain segments, how, how certain segments might re- respond, um, how different ecosystems like protocol tokens and utility tokens and traditional asset tokens, how some of these things might converge into one ecosystem eventually. So uh, I guess a lot of it is conceptual, as you alluded to. 
but none of it is like real life examples that can assist them in making like choices and trade-offs and in different scenarios. You you kind of just stick to, I guess, the standards and principles, right? Um, that's hard to say. So we are, I mean, I, a lot of this stuff is framed in big picture. Um, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be giving them investment advice. For example, I'm not going to say like you should buy Monero and, uh, you know, don't buy Bitcoin or whatever, but I'm hoping to give them some sort of tools and frameworks to kind of think about how you might value these assets, how the assets might develop um, and how the ecosystem might develop. So I, I do think that what they will learn will help them uh, make decisions, I think is the way you framed it. Um, but I'm not going to be making the decisions for them in class. It's definitely more about, you know, teaching a person to fish rather than giving them the fish. That's that's really difficult in this particular scenario because this technology is so broad-reaching across a lot of different disciplines. You've you've brought computer science with, you know, cryptography with financial with finance and and game theory and a lot of other like disparate sources of of intellectual disciplines that are each kind of academic silo is starting to look at these things, but there's no real way to kind of encompass it all. Like for instance, your classes are really probably looking for these things or if you use financial tools to evaluate what a good cryptocurrency is, you, you might be losing a lot of the real underlying utility that these things are providing in a computer science perspective. Like, how do you see academia building a curriculum around this technology as it, as it becomes more and more mainstream, trying to bring together these different viewpoints into something that helps, say, for instance, a potential cryptocurrency PhD or people coming out with a bachelor's in cryptocurrency or blockchain technology. Do you think that's going to be a thing? And how might that ever even come into reality? So that's a great question. Um, it's difficult to answer, uh, but I do think, so I don't know if you, I, I guess, again, it would depend on what you're trying to use it for. Right. So the way mm -hmm. I think about this is cer like certainly within economics, I do believe this will become um, sort of a field of economics. Uh, so you could see people like within an economic context kind of focusing on decentralized systems, uh, value transfer and that type of thing. Um, that's going to be different than somebody who's going through a computer science PhD that's really focusing on the cryptography or something like that. And so the question is, like, should there be joint degree programs where you cover both? And right. So I guess all I was going to say is, like, if you if you go to most business people and you ask them to explain, you know, anything, IMAP, POP3, TCP, IP, they're not really going to be able to explain the technical aspects of that. But that doesn't prevent them from using email. Right. So tremendous amount of business is done over a protocol they don't really understand the technical detail of. So when you talk about like everyday people, um, I'm not sure it's important for them to understand every detail of uh, every technical detail at, at the same time. I mean, in order for like a lot of these use cases to actually occur, I don't think mass adoption requires everybody understanding the technical detail. When you talk about scholars, which I think is more where your question was aimed, like if we think about PhDs, um, then I think you are going to see some crossover where people are going to both dive into the computer science side and the economic side because 
Um, I mean, to get at some of the game theory and whatnot, that's primarily over on that's primarily over on the economic side, mm-hmm. um, or at least that's where I was exposed to it. I should say. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting future, and I, and I always I'm always curious how these things start to then become curriculums in the academic setting and how someone who's interested can go in because this is just so heavily interdisciplinary that it's hard to figure out what it would look like in the like the way current things currently work in academia so i was just that's i was wondering about your perspective in it because i come from a physics chemistry computational science background and i've only been exposed to economics since getting into this and now i'm fascinated but right yeah so uh yeah i think uh that's that's a I think that's a great way to wrap up our interview. Yeah, I can, today. With the, I can hit him with the the hardest question of all if you're ready. Okay, we need one more soundbite from you, and that's uh, in sure. ten words or less. Can you describe Bitcoin? Sure. Let's see, ten words or less. Um, so Bitcoin is the transfer of assets uh, without intermediation using cryptography and distributed ledgers. Is that 10 words or less? You have to hit the exam. I think you might (laughs) hit 10. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Thanks, Steve. I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, really enjoyed that conversation. All right. Sounds good. The next six weeks isn't filled with travel and stress and you can kind of relax a little bit. So thanks. No, I have the most travel-free six weeks of the year coming up. So I'm looking forward to just uh, hanging out here in Eugene for a little while. Right on. All right. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. All right. Yep. Bye-bye.